Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. There are many changes happening in the world today, and we thought it would be valuable to create a special episode in our Dev Life series. While there is much we have to be proud of, especially during June, the month of Pride, we also wanted to take a moment to reflect on the importance of equality for all people. The celebration of what we've achieved is as important as ever, but we want to acknowledge that equality is forever an ongoing process, and one that we wholeheartedly support. Today we wanted to share stories of giving back to the LGBTQ community. Thank you for listening, and we hope it gives you inspiration within your own. Welcome to another episode of the Codish podcast. I'm Erin Allard, a platform support engineer at Heroku, and I'm here today with a few of my colleagues from the wider Salesforce organization, and we are here to have a discussion about volunteering for LGBTQ plus organizations. Uh, for those who may not be aware, LGBTQ plus stands for lesbian, bisexual, gay, transgender, queer, and all other varieties of um, sexual orientation and gender identities. So without further ado, I would like to introduce my uh, podcast participants. Um, the first person on my list is Jace, who works for salesforce.org. The next person is Eric, who is who describes himself as a sort of Salesforce adjacent person, and he'll uh, tell us more about that in a moment. And then lastly, but not least, we have Brian, who also works at Heroku with me, and Brian is a manager on our runtime team. So I guess we'll just go through each person here and say a little bit about your role at Salesforce or Heroku and what brings you to the episode today? We'll start with you, Jace. So uh, my role is interesting. I work at, uh, for the customer-centric engineering team at salesforce.org. And in a nutshell, we are the ones that handle some of the high-levelist uh, high case escalations that come in around our education and nonprofit uh, products. Um, but my other half of my job focuses on building diverse and inclusive open source communities. And uh, that really rallies around the idea of uh, working with hundreds of volunteers and staff worldwide uh, to crowdsource impact and drive innovation in order to maximize philanthropic, altruistic, and humanitarian impact in our communities and around the world. Let's move on to Eric. Eric, would you tell us a little bit more about your Salesforce adjacency and uh, what brings you to the episode today? So my brother joined Salesforce as a developer about a year or two ago. And when the month started, when uh, June, which is Pride Month, started, he got in contact with me. Uh, someone had asked him if he knew anyone who had done volunteer work uh, in the LGBTQ community. And I, I said I would be happy to, to oblige. I'm actually in a medical residency. I'm a family medicine resident in the New York area. Um, so you know, like I said, Salesforce adjacent, uh, but very happy to be here. And Brian, a fellow Herokai, could you please tell us a bit about your work at Heroku and uh, what caused you to say yes to being on the episode today? Yeah, absolutely. I'm one of the managers on the runtime team at Heroku, and we build all the containerization and networking automation that underpins both the common runtime and private spaces products. I actually lead a couple of teams that manage sort of the outward facing piece of 
both of those products. Salesforce has a very large volunteering community and, and places a lot of emphasis on volunteering. So we track hours and I was one of the top 100 volunteers last year. Partially, <laughs> thank you. Partially due to volunteering with some LGBTQ charities. And so when someone reached out to me about talking about that, I was, uh, was really excited to, to do that. I'd like to start us off by, um, I guess, uh, a, a tiny bit of name dropping or plugging. I'm really curious to know what organizations you all have volunteered for and why, you know, like what, what drew you to those particular organizations? Brian, maybe we'll start with you. I am based in Chicago and I've been helping out a few organizations, uh, but especially uh, the Night Ministry here, which is an organization devoted to mitigating the suffering of homeless people in Chicago. Um, and among other things, they have a lot of education initiatives and, and a lot of social services things and operate a van that drives around a very LGBTQ heavy area of the city and offers medical services to mm. homeless people. But mm -hmm. they also offer a, or operate a youth shelter um, that mainly targets LGBTQ youth and gives them a place to sleep, um, social services, support, all the um, education and and job search kind of help that they could ask for, I hope. <laughs> and how did you decide that the Night Ministry was an organization that you wanted to spend some time supporting? I mean, homelessness is a really important issue to me, and I think particularly queer youth and obviously all the, the intersections with various other minorities, like you see a lot more homelessness in, in those populations. And um, so that seemed like an ideal fit to me. I also, a long time ago, I realized several years after coming out um, that coming out may be like a very personal thing, but as you age, it's really about building a support network for the people around you and the people that come after you that are struggling. Mm. And so looking for ways that I can maximize that ability to like build that network of support for people that, you know, maybe they've been kicked out of the house mm -hmm. because of, of being queer, being able to, to help people like that uh, deal with some of the things that, <laughs> that maybe I felt really alone mm -hmm. dealing with when I was young. Right. Uh, that, that just seemed really ideal to me. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. And uh, one thing I did want to sit on for just a moment uh, you used the word queer, and I used the word queer in explaining the LGBTQ acronym, but I didn't actually say what queer meant. Could you uh, help our folks who may be hearing this word for the first time or not really knowing yet what it means? What does it mean to be queer? And of course, this definition varies person to person, but just in a broad sense. I'm using it somewhat as an umbrella term. That's not the only way to use it. In some sense, I'm using it as shorthand for the entire LGBTQ plus acronym because it's mm -hmm. it's a term that for many people encapsulates all sexual orientation and gender minorities um, mm -hmm. like I said not all people agree with that definition but but that's the one I'm comfortable with and it's how I identify um, let's move on to Eric now um, Eric before we started recording you mentioned um, an organization in New York that you are really happy to support and also were interested in sharing your perspective from the healthcare side of things. Could you tell us a bit about the organizations that you've participated with and uh, what drew you to those organizations? 
And like Brian, I also have a, a large interest in, in the issue of, of homelessness. Um, it's something that there's many different causes, many aspects of uh, that include financial issues, um, sometimes mental health issues, sometimes substance abuse issues in the LGBTQ community. Largely, you know, you see it in, in youth um, due to and you know, an unaccepting family or an uh, unaccepting society. And the organization in New York, it's called the Ali Forney Center. It's uh, an organization for LGBTQ youth, and it's a drop-in center, and it's an organization that helps people with job preparedness, with transitional housing, and getting people off of the streets. Before I started med school, I did a, a year of volunteering in an organization out in California as well um, called TLCS, used to stand for Transitional Living and Community Support. And they dealt with uh, clients who were dual diagnosed with psychiatric issues and substance abuse disorders. Um, mm. They also had a specific housing location for people who were living with HIV as well. In the LGBTQ community specifically, uh, substance abuse issues and psychiatric issues are um, they're more prevalent than in the greater society. Mm. And that's one of those issues that, you know, that LGBTQ people um, need to have addressed just because dealing with, you know, growing up feeling other or not feeling accepted uh, can be really, really damaging. And, and people use all sorts of things to help numb those feelings or, or help work through those feelings. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, abuse is a risk factor for develop, developing psychiatric issues as well. So, so I, I kind of like the intersection of homelessness as, as a way to work in the community in a, a social sense in addition to in a medical sense because those issues are things that we see in the office and in, in, in the hospital very regularly and, and they're very important issues to be addressed. I guess a, a question for both Eric and Brian and Jace, I know we haven't gotten to you yet, Ben, we'll definitely get to you next, but both uh, Eric and Brian, um, you both are drawn to the issue of homelessness and it seems to me just listening from how you in particular, Eric, are describing homelessness, that homelessness is actually a symptom of potentially many problems. Um, you know, it's certainly a, a social problem in and of itself, um, but it seems like homelessness is sort of a result of other uh, societal failings or, or family failings. Is that an accurate read that I have on, on the topic? Homelessness is, you know, it's very it's very universal. There's, you know, sets of circumstances that can cause it, but it is also a very individual thing. And there's a lot of different paths people can take to it or, or really um, that people can be led into it. Um, mm. And in this country in particular, we don't do a great job of caring for the most vulnerable in particular people with mental health issues. Um, you know, we have really, really awful access to healthcare in this country um, and there's so many barriers to entry. Um, even people with good jobs and good insurance don't always get the, the mental health services that they need. And, you know, for vulnerable communities and, and largely minority communities, either racial or sexual or, or gender minorities or, um, you know, even like socioeconomic minorities, we as a society try to brush those issues under the rug or not address them or um, specifically avoid you know, using resources and, and, and money to address those issues. You know, that's just on a society-wide level in, in terms of 
like traumas that you might go through growing up in a home or in a church community, you, you know, or, or in, in school or in a job, um, those can also be things that lead to, you know, issues like substance abuse. Yeah, I think one of the scary parts to me is how self-perpetuating homelessness is. As Eric was talking about, there are a lot of socioeconomic and health and mental health and race-related reasons. And, you know, being queer certainly can can result in homelessness. But w- once you're on the street, I think that's the thing that really gets me is that the resources aren't there to help you get off the street being on the street, then you're not sleeping as well as you could. That yeah. drives, like, if you have any kind of mental health problem already, um, you know, that's going to be exacerbated by the fact that you maybe are sleeping on a train where you have to get off the train every 90 minutes and get back yeah. on again, which is a big thing that we see here in Chicago. And like having your sleep interrupted like that is just going to perpetuate those mental health issues, just going to make it harder for you to get off the street, um, find education, find a community that will help support you. And so it, it just snowballs into this lifelong thing uh, if you can't get some kind of help. I'm really interested to hear from you next, Jace. I haven't given you much opportunity yet to share, but um, you you actually shared with us before we started recording that you have some amount of experience with homelessness as a result of being a member of the LGBTQ plus community. So I'm wondering if you'll be willing to share as much as you're comfortable sharing about that and sort of lead us into uh, the work that you've done with some organizations. I'm, I feel that storytelling is important um, for so many reasons. Uh, it helps connect people and it helps uh, build bridges of connection because ultimately uh, a story is shared. And uh, if there's other people out there that have had this similar experience, it, it might um, just kind of help them open up about it. So for me, uh, I would I, I like to call it privileged homelessness because it's definitely not me living um uh, in a situation to where I didn't have access to maybe a couch at someone's house. I did have access to sleeping in my car during this time. Um, but my experience, uh, came out, came out the same time I came out. I came out at 17, um, to my parents. And, uh, that was, um, was not, uh, the greatest experience. And, um, I was raised in a household where, um, LGBT was, uh, individuals were demonized. And so that translated to me um, at 17. Mm. And uh, from that point on, I, I was living, I was living in my car for a while. Um, luckily, my girlfriend at the time, uh, she knew what was happening. And she knew she knew I was down the street uh, from where her, her parents and where she was living at the time. But, you know, it was it was winter and it was cold. I was in the high desert of Southern California at the time when I was living there. Um, but it was scary. It was very scary because Number one, um, you know, just not having access to the people that you look up at when you're growing up as being mm-hmm. your rock, not having the parents or your siblings there to support you and just kind of feeling abandoned at a time of your life where, you know, you, you kind of make this choice, am I going to live or die? And you choose to live and the door kind of gets shut in your face. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that through those experiences, it did help me find a part of myself that that really is a, a very resilient part of myself. And it has mm-hmm. helped me through several transitions in my life. 
so yeah, so that's that's the experiences I had. And you know, while it started at 17, the relationships with my parents, you know, um, were very rocky going forward. So I found myself sleeping on several different couches, and I didn't have money at the time, so I, I couldn't take myself to the doctor if I got sick. I I just didn't have access to a lot of things during during that time. I was lucky if I had a couch to sleep on. I was lucky if I had enough money to buy a packet of ramen and eat it in my car. Um, I did a lot of car camping at that time. So, so yeah, that's my experience. And not to you know um, make it sound horrible, because clearly I, I work for Salesforce.org now. I you know have a degree um, in computer information systems. I did all the things that those people told me I couldn't do. So. I'm very grateful to be able to share that story. Good for you. And really, really appreciating you sharing that story. I know vulnerability can be tough, especially when your story is potentially heard by a lot of people who you won't ever be able to see. So just really appreciate your openness with that. So with that in mind, did that experience uh, sort of color which organizations you eventually found yourself wanting to support later on in life? Oh, you bet. You bet. Um, I can talk to you. Uh, the one organization I definitely want to highlight because it has played such an active role in my life um, is a nonprofit called WeAreAmplified.org. Um, they focus on advancing empowerment through education and community for underrepresented individuals and in technology. Now, when I'm talking about underrepresented individuals, I'm talking about Black people, people of color, transgender people, non-binary people, neurodiverse women, Etc. Now I want to pause for a second because I want to reflect on a couple terms here. Fantastic. Yeah. Some of the terms I'm going to be talking about, you can look in several different resources. You can talk to several different individuals. They're going to give you um, different responses. But the the uh, definitions I'm going to give you for transgender and non-binary are coming from hrc.org forward slash resources forward slash glossary of terms. So in case any of the listeners want to go and take a look, oh, this cool. is where those terms are coming from. Um, so for transgender, um, transgender is an umbrella term for people whose gender identity and or expression is different from cultural expectations based on the sex they were assigned at birth. So for example, as a transgender person myself, I was assigned the sex of female at birth, but I identify as male. So when we talk about non-binary, um, it's an adjective describing a person who does not identify exclusively as a man or woman. So neurodiversity focuses on individuals with neurological differences that should be recognized and respected, such as autism, dyslexia, et cetera. So how did you become involved with weareamplified.org? Obviously, there's a big alignment in the community that it's serving. Um, and I'm also sensing a connection with the tech world. So how did you get involved with that? Before Amplify was Amplify, it was originally known as Girlforce, and it started as a group in the Power of Us hub um, with the same focus. And um, I had become a board member of Amplify back in 2014. That was when I was, believe it or not, I was still a customer using Salesforce.org products on the education side. And I was oh, wow. a community member in the Power of Us Hub. And so I found out that there was this group that was all about the things that I was about. It stood for all the things that I did, and I quickly recognized myself within that community, and it grew to be a thriving community. Um, I want to say it was back in 2018, 2019, when Amplify realized that Girlforce um, wasn't really representative, truly, of what it stood for. And so, what they what they decided to do, what we decided to do at the time, is that we figured we need to rebrand. We need to rebrand to something that 
that we can align with and that we feel is a value to how we see ourselves, how we see each other and how we wanna see the world. And so we focused on the fact that we amplify voices. And so hence we came to the term uh, of amplify or we are amplify. And so um, to me, being a part of this group and seeing so many people rally around the need to find inclusion in technology um, especially around underrepresented individuals and finding ways to come together and build community and rely on each other. Back when it was still Girl Force, we created something called the Bookshelf. And the Bookshelf was a focus on books, like a small book club, where we would get together and discuss things. And I remember the first, uh, the first bookshelf we had um, was on Brene Brown. And it was talking about, um, you know, the, the power of, of being transparent and the, and the power of vulnerability and the need to bring down shame. And I think in underrepresented groups, especially in technology, the fact of being underrepresented, you could be at a table and still not be seen. You can, you can talk and still not be heard. The fact that we have this group of individuals, of like-minded individuals, including allies, um, being able to amplify our messages and our words was something that was incredibly powerful to me. And so when Amplify became more than just a group in the Power of Us Hub and it became its own nonprofit, I wanted to do everything I possibly could to help everyone that was a part of this, a part of this growth, um, go global. And we are Amplify has groups all over the world now. And wow. um, yeah, it's amazing. And the fact that the, you know, in the Power of Us Hub, over 5,000 members alone, um, these are active members. So, and our numbers keep growing. We also have a, um, an ally um, aspect of we are amplify as well. So there's a lot of learning opportunities. There's a lot of events that happen. So if anyone's interested in learning more, if you go to weareamplify.org, you can find out ab about local events that are taking place. You can find out about um, volunteer opportunities and things like that. But definitely check it out if you if you're looking for a way to invest your time in supporting underrepresented communities. Then amplify, I would say, is the center of that, and they they have a lot of great opportunities. So. That's how Amplify came to me. One thing that I'm noticing um, that that is common in each of your stories is the intersectionality. Intersectionality is the intersection of someone having various identities. For example, my wife identifies as a woman, she identifies as gay, and she is also of mixed race. And so for her, she has you know, themes of gender, themes of sexual orientation, and themes of race in, um, in a lot of her interactions in the world. And I noticed that each of you talked about intersectionality, either specifically or, um, you know, in passing. And it seems to me like intersectionality is actually a really big piece of uh, the LGBTQ plus experience. So I just want to spend a few minutes talking a bit about this. And I'll, I'll leave it kind of open. Um, and I, I guess I can start by sharing that the Outforce group at Salesforce, which is the affinity group, if you will, for LGBTQ plus folks and allies, has been focusing their energy uh, this Pride Month, Pride, Pride 2020, on trans Black people, for example. Brian, I'll pass this off to you first. Do you have anything you want to share with respect to intersectionality? Oh, sure. I, in working at the crib, the night ministries, um, homeless shelter for youth, 
you know, most of the people that you see in the crib are experiencing the effects of intersectionality, but often that can be magnified because that might cause you to get rejected from another community that you're a part of. Or for example, um, you know, people that I know who would otherwise be, be seeking out support from the LGBTQ community um, may be ostracized because of race, for example. So it's not even just that you have these collection of experiences of oppression, but that even the communities that you would go to for support sometimes are the source of that oppression. Mm. So you end up with this really, like, especially some people, you know, like trans Black women might experience multiple layers of this kind of oppression where they all interact with each other. And so instead of having just the queer blanket or the Black blanket, they have just layers of blankets piled on top of them until they're completely weighed down. I think that's a really good analogy, Brian. And I I also wanted to call out why it has seemed more important than ever um, for Pride 2020 that the LGBT community really support the Black community and especially Black queer people, given all that is happening with Black Lives Matter and racial justice. Eric, I think you may have some thoughts about this as well. So I'll pass this over to you. Sure. And I I just wanted to start off by saying, even in this podcast, part of the privilege I think that is going on here is that there aren't any Black voices in this podcast. Yep. And not to say that that doesn't make it legitimate, but it's it's more evidence that, you know, uh, oftentimes Black people are left out of a conversation. um, And sometimes that's because of a lack of opportunity. And what I wanted to say, I wanted to talk a little bit about intersectionality using an example from healthcare. So there are certain health risks, you know, in the gay community in particular, like HIV, that are amplified in in the LGBTQ community. And, you know, as a white gay man, I have an increased risk of contracting HIV in my lifetime. Um, And I'm looking at the stats from HIV.gov right now, and it's saying that there's you know, one in 11 white MSM, which is men who have sex with men, will be diagnosed with HIV in their lifetime. But if you look at Hispanic MSM, it's one in four Hispanic men who have sex with men will be diagnosed with HIV in their lifetime. And with African American MSM, it's one in two. Wow. And those are staggering numbers on all counts, but it kind of shows the layers, right? You know, all three groups are at increased risk, but uh, Hispanic men and African American men are significantly more at risk of contracting the disease, and you have to look at, you know, what sort of factors are involved there, and that's where intersectionality comes in because there are other factors, there are other types of oppression and systemic racism, uh, and lack of access to healthcare, and not even just lack of access to healthcare, but you know, racism within healthcare. Um, mm-hmm. You can even talk about women's experience with the doctor and in particular trans women, you know, women in general don't have complaints of pain taken as seriously by doctors. They routinely have things disregarded and, and trans women and trans men have significant parts of their healthcare and cancer screening left off completely by uh, doctors and, and healthcare professionals who either don't know um, to help them with or don't care to. Minorities face different levels of discrimination and, and neglect you know, but there's there's privilege 
there and there's a lack of privilege there too. So, so it all kind of, I guess, intersects. Those statistics are astonishing. You know, I, I also have a, an amount of privilege as well, because this is the first I'm hearing of it. You know, I'm, I'm not really in a, a group that is at high risk for contracting HIV. So it hasn't, I mean, this will sound bad to say, but it's the truth. It, It hasn't been important for me personally to kind of be up on that, if you will. Um, so hearing you share that is just a reminder that I could have my eyes open wider. You know, it's important to keep perspective too, because any minority group has has issues that they face, and not every group is ever going to fully understand or or be fully educated on on all the the discrimination, you know, types of discrimination that that other groups face. But you know, we can be kind to other people who aren't going through what we are and and allow for them to have a you know make an earnest attempt to be better and to educate themselves and to be supportive and when we are the ones who are not educated to make that honest effort to understand other people and and to support other people when they're when they're facing things that we don't necessarily understand or aren't subject to ourselves Jace would you like to chime in on our conversation about intersectionality Yeah so I want everyone listening for a moment to put yourself in the shoes of a trans woman and you're at your doctor's and you're filling out a form and you notice that the form only gives you the gender options of male and female. Well, you identify as female, so you choose female. A couple months later, a new drug comes out to help avoid prostate cancer. You don't get that notice simply because the gender identities in that form don't include transgender. So I want to talk about the, I just wanted to emphasize on the concept of intersectionality, even when it comes to medical treatment, when it comes to things like that, these are situations that happen all the time. Even just the lack of gender identities in medical forms are killing people Mm. because they're not given the option to even know about life-saving medical treatments. I felt that as Eric was talking, and I, I just wanted to, to add that little bit of uh, food for thought for our audience. I had to go to the doctor a couple weeks ago, and I noticed that the, um, the Wi-Fi password at my doctor's office was he, she, they. And, you know, being kind of attuned to inclusive language, I said to the receptionist, hey, I really, I really appreciate your Wi-Fi password. I I would appreciate it generally, but the fact that in a medical facility, gender fluidity or or non-binary gender was actually being recognized and shared, like, you know, even people who may align with the gender binary, like they have to type in that password when they're trying to get on the internet. And so for me, it was like, oh my gosh, how cool my my doctor's office is, is actually doing this. I'd like to shift our conversation towards pride during a pandemic or even you know, supporting the LGBTQ plus community in some way during a pandemic. Um, obviously, everything is virtual now. How can people who want to contribute positively to our community do so virtually? Do you have any thoughts or recommendations? I would just say from a from a pride perspective in a 
you know, in a COVID-19 world and making sure that we're all still doing our very best to stay connected is just reach out, you know, reach out to your social networks, you know, at this point, like look on Facebook, look what types of activities are happening or, you know, take it to Twitter. There are opportunities, even though they may not necessarily be a live face-to-face type of an interactive event, just simply listening to conversations that are happening to feel empowered and uplifted, not just by others that may look like you or feel like you or have the same experiences, but also allies. Allyship is huge during uh, Pride Month. Allyship is what got me through those days I was talking about earlier when I was living in my car. I had voices in my ears of friends telling me that, hey, don't give up. You need to live. You need to stand up. You, you, need, to, you, you need to take that next step. Don't listen to the people and the voices that are telling you that you can't because you can. And so during Pride Month, just making sure that you're connecting and you're looking for it. And and I feel that in in the COVID-19 environment, people are looking for people and there are always opportunities to make connection. But having that closeness and just listening to their support for our community, for the community in the world, for Black Lives Matter, it, it was something very much needed. And, and in, a, in a world right now where we're disconnected, we're even more connected. So I want, I want to remind everyone that that is truly the case. And I want to say one more thing. It's also very privileged um, because I do have access to internet and I do have access to things that allow living in a virtual environment, virtual world right now, very easy. So I do want to, I do want to state that, that not everyone has those opportunities. Mm. And in situations like that, I, I, my privilege prevents me from even giving an answer on how to address those types of things. But um, I guess the the thing I would say is if I was in a situation like that, I would be reaching out to people. Um, and I, even if that meant I was walking and going to their house or wherever they were to find them, to find that community, because right now is a time where people feel very isolated. Um, but at the same time, you need community. You need community to survive. You need the touch of another human being. You need to know that you're cared for. And another thing to think about is that while we're all stuck home alone or, or with you know chosen families as adults, there are a lot of people who are stuck home with not chosen families um, who are more vulnerable than ever right now. Mm-hmm. And you know you, you think of kids and adolescents who are, who are coming of age and, and starting to understand their sexual or, or gender identities stuck in a house 24 seven with people who may or may not be supportive. And I think back to myself as a little gay kid thinking that by default, there was something wrong with me and that the world is against me and everyone hated me. And if that's your default worldview, and I think a lot of LGBTQ plus people grow up with those sorts of feelings, if that's your default worldview, then silence from other people around you only serves to to reinforce that that feeling and so you know particularly now when people are are maybe alone you know they need that support they need active vocal support whether that's putting a you know a a rainbow flag or or a trans flag on a social media account or or posting something about pride month you know in a positive way or reaching out and, and calling someone that you think may be struggling you know, vocal support and coming out as as an ally means the world 
um, to people. And it's, it's the difference between thinking that, you know, you have people for you or, or everyone is against you. At work, we've been talking about how a, a huge amount of calls to Child Protective Services uh, about abuse come from teachers. And mm. for kids at home right now, that resource is no longer an option. And, and LGBTQ plus children and adolescents are, you know, more vulnerable to that than, than your average children. And so it's not just a, a benign quarantine where you're stuck at home with video games or, or whatever for a lot of people. You know, it's a, it can be a really awful awful time. And so, you know, anywhere you see someone who's struggling, you know, obviously, we're not, we're not going to be able to, to stop child abuse or, or save the world, you know, during this pandemic. But the more connection that we can achieve during this, the more we can reach out to other people. You know, those are our tools right now. Brian, what about you? Any sort of parting thoughts about allyship and pride during the pandemic? Uh, Yeah, two, two quick thoughts, Uh, just echoing Jace. Seeking out that community is really important, but also um, hearkening back to our intersectionality conversation, a lot of people are looking for that same same sense of community and elevating the voices of people who may not otherwise be heard, events that otherwise wouldn't get large attendance online. Uh, just, just trying to elevate the voices of queer people is something that you could really do as an ally during Pride Month. The other piece that I wanted to mention is that a lot of LGBTQ organizations that accept volunteers that otherwise are very not online have started to come up with ways to use online volunteers to accomplish their missions. So looking around for organizations like that um, or getting involved in one that's already really online, like the Amplify organization that Jace was talking about, uh, could be really great ways to show your pride or your allyship. Well, I'd like to wrap us up by saying that we've talked about some pretty heavy things in this episode. We've talked about homelessness. We've talked about um, unequal a- access to healthcare. We've talked about people growing up in situations that feel unsafe. Um, so I want to leave our listeners with uh, what I think is a phenomenal list of organizations um, that are available in the show notes that you could reach out to to you know take action on some of these heavy things that we've talked about today. We have links to about two dozen organizations. A lot of them are in the intersectionality space. So a lot of them are at the intersection of the LGBTQ plus community and the black community. Um, there are also some organizations on our list that are not so much intersectional, at least, you know, not in their names. So I really encourage listeners to at least check out a few of them, familiarize yourself with the work that they're doing, potentially get involved, and involvement could be uh, giving time through volunteering, it could be giving skills, Uh, you know, maybe they need help with a website, or maybe they need people to make phone calls. Um, It could be giving money if you're in a position to do so. So those are just a few quick suggestions for how to get involved and keep the spirit of volunteering that we were trying to capture in this episode going forward and and keep putting that out into the world. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Kodish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.